So the title of today's message, dear friends, is God's promise and Israel's plight. And our text is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Now the backdrop of this text, and actually the backdrop of the next three chapters in the book of Romans, is the question of God's promise of righteousness for all who will believe in Jesus Christ in light of Israel's plight of unbelief in Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah. Now, Paul briefly took this question up in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And basically what he said in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 is, hey, their unbelief doesn't make God's gospel wrong. He just briefly discussed it in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to take up this issue in depth. And here's the issue. I'm getting a little bit raspy back here, so I'm going to go to this bad boy. Easily, I'm distracted, Tyler. Um, So here's the issue. Here's here's what Paul's going to take up in these next three chapters, really talking about God's promises of righteousness to Israel and to to the Gentile. Here it is. Is God's promise of righteousness in Christ nullified because of Israel's unbelief? That's the question that hangs over this text and really hangs over the next three chapters to some extent. Isn't it true, church, that sometimes the unbelief of others can tempt us to question God's promises? For example, the scripture that Jim Britt preached many, many months ago, the thematic scripture of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it's up on the screen, gives us the promise that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe in Jesus. Look at it with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul had this verse in mind when he penned our text this morning. Because Not many Jews, by the time Paul wrote the book of Romans, not many Jews believed in Jesus as their Messiah. And and so some had begun to question whether God's word had failed. We're actually going to read that in a moment in verse 6. But isn't it true, church, that we too can perhaps have Romans 1, 16 to 17 in our minds when we look around us here in this church or in this city or in this region And we don't see that many people believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Nor following Him as their Lord. Christ and His church isn't a priority for the majority of people in South Florida. And we can wonder whether God keeps His word. We can wonder whether their unbelief somehow nullifies the truthfulness of God's promises. The truthfulness of this verse. We ask the Lord, where's your power to save, Lord? It seems like so few believe. I read the following statistics on the North American Mission Board website of the Southern Baptist Convention on a site about cities that they've identified as priority cities. There are 32 cities they've identified as priority cities or cities in need of the gospel. And you guessed it. Miami and South Florida are on the list. According to this website, there are 5.67 million people in South Florida. That's Palm Beach all the way down to Monroe County is in the Keys. 
Miami-Dade County alone has 3.5 million. South Florida is the fourth largest U.S. US population center. There are approximately 11.4% of the population affiliated with an evangelical church in South Florida. However, that number drops to 5% if you're just looking at Miami-Dade County. Miami-Dade County, only 5% are affiliated. And they even say on the website, that's a real loose term. Like, I went once last year. (laughs) I went for Christmas. You know, my cousin is a pastor, so, you know, when someone gets baptized, I'll go. 5% in Miami-Dade. According to missions experts, a people group is considered unengaged or unreached when the number of evangelical Christians is 2% or less. Miami is way too close for comfort. So when we look at this unbelief surrounding us and we think of the years that we've spent, so many of sharing the gospel, praying, giving, working, preaching, serving, we're tempted to unbelief. And the ugly question that this unbelief can produce in our hearts is the following question. It's up on the screen. Does God keep his word? It's the question that the Romans were asking. Does God keep his word? Friends, God answers that question this morning in this text. And I want to pray for us that that his answer would build up our faith once again. I'm aware that the question of whether God keeps his word can spread like gangrene to other areas of our lives. It's a slippery and dangerous slope to begin asking this question without receiving God's immediate and definitive and sustaining answer. And that's what you're going to receive this morning. So let's pray for this word to speak into our hearts about his faithfulness to keep his promises. Even when it appears that the unbelief of those around us somehow nullifies his word. Let's pray. Lord, help me to preach your word this morning accurately with unction. Lord, this would be more than just a, a sermon, something written in, a, in an office and delivered to a group of people. But this would be your very word, Lord, preached to your people with your anointing by your spirit. You would save and you would sanctify and you would build your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read it now, church. Are you there? Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. Romans 9, verse 1 through verse 13. Paul is writing to the Roman church. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told 
The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul laments strongly in the first three verses and the fact that the majority of Israel, his brothers and sisters in the flesh, in La Carne, his people, do not believe in Christ as Jesus Christ, as their Messiah, and thus they are accursed. In fact, he believes so strongly, he calls the Holy Spirit to bear witness that he, in fact, could wish himself to be accursed, that they would be saved. One commentator said that a drop of Christ's sacrificial love sparked this in Paul's heart. Yes, it did. But, of course, it is not possible for Paul to be separated from the love of Christ. No, But Paul's level of grief shows the depth of the struggle here in Paul's heart for his ethnic people. He's not simply giving us some profound theology here. Oh, he's doing that. But he is giving us the pastor's heart. He's giving us God's heart expressed here. I love what Tom Schreiner says in his commentary on the book on this passage. Deep sorrow plagues him, Paul, because many of his fellow Jews are not part of the true people of God, the Church of Christ. What torments Paul is that so many of his fellow Jews are unsaved. Paul's heart is rent with sorrow because so many of his kindred have rejected the message of the gospel and are therefore destined for judgment. But what does this do to the message of the gospel? Does this invalidate it? I need to remind you about a couple of things, the reason this question even arises. First of all, to appreciate Paul's intensity, understand this, Paul's a Jew. He's a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. And yet, he was called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So right there, we see a tension. Next, look at the map on the screen. Remember that for the last 10 years, this book was written roughly in 54 AD in Corinth, which is in Achaia up on your map, modern-day Greece. But remember for the last 10 years, Paul has been tooling around the eastern Mediterranean primarily, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches and strengthening new Christians. And everywhere he went as a Jew, he had to answer this question. Hey, these Gentiles that are getting saved, are they part of God's chosen people? What about the Jewish law? What role does the law play in the New Testament covenant of Christ? Is there continuity between Old Testament and New Testament? He said, yes, there is. And no, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. And no, they don't have to keep the ceremonial law. We are saved by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone through the grace of God alone. And Paul received a lot of grief for that. Jews were suspicious of him. Very suspicious of him. And so now he's writing a letter to the church in Rome, which is in sort of the central Mediterranean. And he tells them at the end of this letter, Jim taught us this when he first introduced the book. He tells them, hey, I'm on my way to Spain. We all know that one, right? Hispana, Hispania, there on the far left-hand side. That was the westernmost edge of of the Mediterranean. That was the ends of the earth back then. Jerusalem's on the easternmost end of the Caribbean. Paul's on his way to Spain, and he says, hey, church in Rome, I've never been there. But I want to write you a letter And I want to clarify this gospel that I've been preaching for 10 years and taking a lot of heat for it for 10 years. And one of the main reasons I'm taking heat for it is this whole question of Israel. And in the last 10 years, fewer and fewer Jews are believing. As a matter of fact, the the church in Rome is now primarily Gentile. The Jews had been thrown out of Rome. Again, reference one of Jim's messages early on. And then they they came back after an emperor named Claudius died. 
And so now they come back to a church that they had planted, the Jews had planted it in 33 AD, right after Pentecost, a bunch of them were in Jerusalem, then they came back to Rome and they planted the church, they, they, they preached the gospel, it was a Jewish church, and now 21 years later, there's hardly a Jew to be found in the church. A, a lot of them didn't come back to Rome when they were allowed to come back, and B, God has been saving a lot of people, and it's mostly Gentiles. So there was this problem in Rome that Paul is addressing, this tension between Jew and Gentile. And the question is, is God faithful to his promises to Israel? Why is it that there aren't that many Jews in the church? Hey, I thought in the Old Testament God gave him his word, he gave him all these things. As a matter of fact, I want you to look at all the privileges that Israel has. Point one, God's word to God's people. God's word. Look at this list that Paul gives us here in verses 4 and 5. This list is amazing. We begin here with verse 4, and it says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Now, first of all, let me just tell you this. You could go ahead and put up that next screen. You can, uh, I can tell you this. When Paul says they are Israelites, that is the self-description that the Jews used. They didn't like to be called Jews. That's what the Gentiles called them. An Israelite is a chosen one of God. They're Israel, the chosen one of God. They called themselves Israelites. So immediately when he uses that word, he's saying, here's God's chosen people. Why are they not believing in the Messiah now? And then to, to accentuate their chosenness, he begins to list the privileges they had from God in the Old Testament. And he does it in three pairs. And these pairs go together. So if you look in verse 4, the first one you'll see there is, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So what we're going to do is we're going to put together the adoption and the giving of the law. Here's the deal. When God delivered Israel out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery, you know what he called them? His firstborn. That's that's what he called Israel. Moses called them that when he was referring to them in Pharaoh's presence. Let the firstborn of God go. He's remembering the covenant with Abraham and that these really were the firstborn. These are, this is God's son. Israel was called God's son. And then when God took them out of Egypt, he formed them into a nation at Mount Sinai through the law, through the law of Moses. But friends, here's what Paul's been preaching. Jesus is the greater firstborn, firstborn from the dead. And we are adopted as God's sons and daughters In him alone, the law cannot adopt us to be God's sons and daughters. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The Father doing what the law could not do. He gave us righteousness in Christ. And that's why Paul laments, yes, they're God's chosen people, but that doesn't invalidate the gospel. It causes me to cry out and wish I could be accursed because they're missing it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the adoption and the law motifs or privileges of Old Testament Israel. I want you to see this continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. Paul cries out, O Israel, believe in Jesus. The next couplet is glory and worship. 
glory and worship. Israel received the glory and the worship of God as God's chosen people. The glory of God is God's very presence, which was in the tent of meeting in the wilderness and later in the temple in Jerusalem where, G- where Israel was to worship God and God alone. The presence of God was with them. The glory of God was with them. And they were to worship God. But, oh, friends, Jesus is the very presence of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. And he is now the new temple. He is the place where we worship God, not with the sacrifice of blood and goats and lambs and animals on an earthly temple, but with the blood, the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God in the heavenly temple. And that makes a way for us to approach God's throne and and worship. And so here, Paul's lament, oh, Israel, believe in Jesus. There's your salvation. And if you're here this morning, hear my lament for you. You who are here this morning and do not believe in Jesus, oh, believe in him, dear friend. He alone can save you. He alone can save you. And the final couplet here. Covenants and promises. Covenants and promises. They were the recipients of God's covenants and God's promises. The covenants of the Old Testament, they all represented God's saving promises. His promise to send a Messiah. His promise is fulfilled. Oh, hear Paul lament. Hear him cry out. Listen, he's sobbing. There's, there's snot coming out of his nose. This is not a pretty scene. Paul is saying, I wish, curse me, God. Let them see that Jesus is the Messiah. In one sense, he kind of does what Moses did. Moses at one point said, oh God, take me and preserve your people. But see, both Moses and Paul know this. It's not their sacrifice that will save his people. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As, as Ruben mentioned earlier, yeah, to give your life for your friend, that's an example we're to follow, but the only reason we can follow it is because only one could give his life. That was Jesus. Jesus was a curse that Israel could be blessed now. Paul's lamenting that they don't see it. Look what else they've been given, the patriarchs. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The patriarchs, listen, they have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Who needs the big three? I miss LeBron. This is the original big three. These are the patriarchs. These are the men that God chose by his own sovereign, elective grace. They were nobodies. They were nothing. They were small. They were Bedouins lost in in the Iraqi desert. And God said, you. And then to his son, you. To his son, you. I am going to give you my glorious covenant of promise. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That blessing comes in Christ. And then he, this is how he finishes it. It's so ludicrous. He's saying to the Jews, he's saying to everybody, listen, don't take their unbelief as a nullification of the gospel promises. The very Savior came from them. The Messiah was descended from Israel at the end of verse 5. But here's the mistake Israel made. See, they thought they owned the Messiah. They thought the Messiah would come to do their bidding, to be their political king. You do not own the Messiah. No, because Paul clearly states here, the Messiah is not some little national God, little G. The Messiah is God over all. 
He's speaking of Jesus Christ here, the Messiah. It's a unique place where God refers to him very clearly in this way. It's a doxology. He's, he's, he's God over all. He's blessed forever. Amen. Paul's message to his brothers and sisters in the flesh, his fellow Jews, is to please bow down and worship Jesus as the Christ, for he's the fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel, all the adoption, all the covenant, all the law. He connects the old and the new in a continuity in himself. And again, my message to you, dear friends, is the same as Paul's message to the church in Rome. If you are here in an unbeliever, I appeal for you to bow down and worship him, repenting of your sins and crying out to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Oh, I pray that. And if you are here as a believer, perhaps a guest this morning or a longtime member, I appeal for you to believe that God does keep his word. He kept his word with Israel. He kept it in Jesus. You can trust him. See, Paul declares emphatically in verse 6 that God's word to Israel, all that we just heard in point 1, has not failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Point 2, Paul now defines God's people. Hey, wait a second. How can God be faithful to his people if the majority of them do not believe? And Paul says, because not all Israel is Israel. Look at it. 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Two things, according to our text now, are going to define God's people. First, they're going to be defined by the promise of God. And second, they're going to be defined by the call or election of God, the sovereign election of God. So let's take a look at these two definitions of God's people. First, in verses 7 to 9, Paul uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael to make the point that it is not those who were physically born of Abraham. Remember, Abraham had a son, Ishmael, by Hagar. It was allowed at that time. And so Ishmael's father was Abraham. And then he had a son with Sarah. They're both Abraham's sons. In fact, at one point, Abraham thought that God would fulfill his promise through Ishmael. God said, no, it's not through Ishmael. And so God says the children are not simply physically born, but they are spiritually children of promise. What was the promise? See in verse 7, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named, in quotes. If you look in your Bible, the cross reference is to Genesis 21, verse 12. You can look at that later. So the children of God, true Israel, are those born of the promise. And and I love what it says in Scripture in the promise. I can't remember, guys, if I put this Scripture there or not. Genesis 18, verse 10. If I didn't, if you can get it up there, that would be sweet. Genesis 18. I want you to see this real quick. Listen to the promise. Okay? Isaac's the son of promise. Listen to the promise. That's impressive. Thank you. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Uh, God is speaking to Abraham Uh, He visited him in the desert. Abraham prepared a meal for him. Lots of imagery there. And he gives them this promise now. So they're in their tents. The tent flaps are flapping. Okay? They're eating together. And Sarah's in the kitchen, only there's no walls. So if you're in the kitchen, you can hear what's happening in the tents. And the Lord said, I will surely... Now, Abraham is about 99 years old. Sarah's in her late 80s, 90s. Okay? The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased with Sarah. Yeah, a long time ago. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's a great scripture. Verse 13, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. True Israel are those that God has chosen to be the sons and daughters of the promise. You can look for it yourself in Galatians. Paul takes up this theme. But secondly, true Israel are those whom God elects sovereignly based upon his will and not their works. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week. Let me introduce it this week to whet your appetite. So, moving down to, let's go verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise was about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's a quote of what we just read in Genesis 18. Now he switches to Jacob. Okay? And not only so, but also. So what he's trying to prove is this. Not everybody born a Jew is actually Israel. The ones born of the promise, and now he's going to say, the ones sovereignly elected by God, called by God. It's based on God's will, not man's works. He's making that point right now. And he's using the birth of Jacob. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, Rebekah is Isaac's wife. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah, and now Rebekah is going to have twins in her womb. Okay? But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that, and this is the key point, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. God originates the choice. It is all God's will. It is based on his sovereign election of us and not our works. Israel are all those called by God. Go back and review the message from last week, Romans 8, 28 to 30. Those whom he foreknew set his covenantal love on. He predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. See, it's not because of what they do, it's what God did. God's calling is effectual. It creates what God requires, a heart of faith in Christ alone. Your son loves the Lord Jesus because of God's mercy on his life. And he's one of the very few in Cuba. And for that, he's being affected. You be careful of the words I use. That's God's will. It wasn't your will, it wasn't my will, it was God's will. You may want it, but that was God's will. I love what Schreiner says in conclusion here. Thus, the thesis of verse 6a is defended. It's not as if God's word has failed. That's the thesis. It's going to be running all the way through these next three chapters. God's promises have not and cannot fail because they are based on his call, which is always effective, and his promise, which is guaranteed. So here's my appeal to you. 
does God keep his word? The answer from this text is yes, he does. And on the screen, God keeps his word to his people in Jesus Christ. God keeps his word to his people. Now, we have to define his people properly, and he does it in Jesus Christ, not in our works, but in his work. God keeps his word to his people in Jesus Christ. God keeps his word to those to those people whom he has given his son. Remember what we read last week. Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son but he delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He completes and he and he keeps his word in Jesus Christ, his son whom he did not spare but gave him up for us all, now Jew and Gentile. Oh, my Jewish brothers, Paul is saying, it was always God's will to bless all the nations through Abraham. Don't you remember that covenant? You can't own the Messiah. The Messiah owns you, or you're not his at all. Friends, we need to respond to God's electing grace this morning. We need to worship him. And in so doing, we join the heavenly host singing praises to him right now. I want to leave you with the scripture. As I'm reading the scripture, worship team, can you hustle up here? Because we have to sing one song at the end of this sermon. It's Revelation 5, 11 to 14. Next week, I'm going to talk more about the doctrine of election, more about God's sovereignty in choosing us. But one thing that it should create in our hearts is gratitude. Never superiority, but always gratitude. Gratitude for God's electing grace so that we can join the heavenly hosts in Revelation 5, verse 11. The Apostle John, at the end of his life, receives this vision from God on the island of Patmos. He was suffering terribly in a pagan Roman Empire. And look what God says to him. Look what God shows him. Then I looked, says John, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This place may not be full, but heaven is full. South Florida may have 11%, Miami 5%, but oh heaven, it's 100%. And it's a multitude. Let that encourage you. See with spiritual eyes. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. And that's Jesus. To receive power and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Listen to that. Listen to that. Every creature, every creature. That's what scripture says. In heaven on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them. I'm not sure all that that means. I have to go back and review my notes. I know what it doesn't mean, but what it does mean to me is there's a whole lot more for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And what are they doing? They're saying this, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fall down and worship. And we're going to fall down and worship before the throne of God. Let's stand together. And let's sing that song to conclude.